Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up on this edition, it's Christian apologist and cold case detective Jay Warner Wallace. He and Sean McDowell have written a book that equips parents and others who work with students and young adults to discuss matters of faith in Christ. Next, it's Carolyn Miller, a fiction author who injects Christian faith principles into her writings, which are set in the Regency period of Great Britain in the early 1800s. You'll find out about her latest book. Plus, author and speaker Jonathan McKee brings some insight about temptation that young men have to wrestle with and provides direction in identifying troublesome areas. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, you'll meet J.P. DeGance of Comenio, an organization that helps churches and communities to strengthen marriages using a data-driven approach and the foundation of Scripture. And there is some disturbing news out of Canada that you will hear addressed by bioethicist and commentator Wesley J. Smith of the Discovery Institute. A study shows that doctors are actually taking the lives of their patients at a concerning rate. You'll be hearing him address the implications. Plus, from First Stone Ministries, it's Stephen Black, who is part of the Gone Too Far Coalition, addressing the advancement of the LGBTQ agenda in culture from a Christian worldview perspective. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Jay Warner Wallace is a cold case detective and well-known Christian apologist. He's concerned with helping people discover and defend biblical truth. He and Sean McDowell have teamed up to address sharing truth with the next generation in a book entitled, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. From a recent conversation, this is Jay Warner Wallace. We are really more concerned about truth than we are about mercy, because we have a sense that, that we're, we're, we're frightened that people are embracing lies, and so we set a sense of panic and a sense of duty to this, right? I get that. Um, but, but what we've discovered working with young people is, and this may sound like, oh, duh, but to be honest, um, I don't see a lot of it happening sometimes, is that there is a connection between relationship and truth that is inseparable. And, and if you want to have an influence on young people today, given the unique place they stand in history. And if you don't think that this group is, in some ways, yes, all of us, when we were young, we were the same young person. I get that. But because of the information age we live in and this digital revolution that we've experienced in the last 30 years, uh, this is a very different group that are first and foremost described as digital natives. You and I, we came to this later in life. We got that cell phone in our, that smartphone in our hand. We are digital immigrants, but this group, these are digital natives. They don't remember a time, and that is, it means that they've got access to more information than any generation before them, and they've had it since they were born, and that means there's a lot of noise, a lot of information mm-hmm. out there. This is also the least trusting generation, because with all that noise and all those websites and all those uh, places on YouTube, all those channels, they're not quite sure who to trust. And I get that. It turns out the more information you have, the less likely you're going to trust that information. And that's where we are with young people. Once you realize that and you start to work through that, then you realize, what, what gives? why should I trust what your parent has to say on this issue? Well, number one, we as parents have to be as informed as that source that's out there that is chirping in their ear. So you can't just like, you know, not inform yourself about the most important things that we think are, are true as Christians, which are the issues related to God. If we're not informed on those ourselves, we cannot uh, pass those on to our kids. But it turns out that our relationship with our kids is what gives us the, the fast lane. 
because they don't have that relationship with people on, online, with sources online, but they do have that with us. So I think it's a matter of us understanding that we can capitalize on the one thing we do have. Now, I will tell you that part of what I see when I see young people who walk away, they often have broken relationships with their parents. And that does happen. And so the parent wonders, well, why didn't I, well, I was able to pass this on? Well, it may be entirely relational. But a lot of times it's just that we don't know how to communicate to a generation that seems to have that glowing rectangle, rectangle you know, kind of sewn to their hand <laughs> at all times, right? We have to figure out, well, how do we communicate with that generation? And that's probably most of what caused us to want to write this book. It's a very practical. It's not a book that's going to teach you Christian worldview. No, no, no. We've written those kinds of books. Those are out there. That's what Cold Case Christianity is. But this book teaches you how to communicate, to transfer the knowledge to the next generation. What are maybe one or two of the principal things or principal concepts that parents really need to know so that there's not a disconnect in the communication with young people? Well, the one thing I try to talk about a lot, and I, I developed this uh, in my own thinking uh, as a pastor first, uh, my kids were not quite teenagers when I was given the, the, the leadership of the teen group at my church. So my kids were maybe like upper elementary, lower junior high. So so they were not quite that age yet, right? So so I got a chance to kind of train wreck a few things before, <laughs> before I got <laughs> to that point. And I did my share of train wrecking. But what I learned is, is that if we can just do one simple thing, and we teach it at length in one of the chapters in the book, is if we will stop and, and, and try to give two whys for every what, anytime we're talking about anything. What I mean is we typically, as parents especially, we have a lot of what's that we try to teach our kids. This is what is true about that. This is what is true about this. This is what we think the, the right behavior is in this setting. What, 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 what? And it sometimes starts to sound like, kind of like that old cartoon with Charlie Brown, you know, with a wah, 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 wah mm-hmm. in the background, right, the teacher. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's what we have to be careful. I think what young people online are always encountering the whys behind the whats by people who are arguing for the opposite side. Now, the first why is simple. Okay, you, you claim this is true about God. Well, why, on the basis of what evidence do you think that's true? So if you're going to make a claim, you need to now, I think, for this generation especially, explain why the claim is true. Why? And, and a lot of times we're going to step outside of purely what's available to us in, um, in Scripture. I also would want to support that with – look, God's created two forms of revelation for us, the, the special revelation of Scripture, and that's where we're going to start. But we also have natural revelation around us. The world actually happens to be exactly as God has described it. So we can use both natural revelation and special revelation to teach our kids why this concept is true. Jay Warner Wallace here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website coldcasechristianity.com. Next, it's fiction writer Carolyn Miller. She shared with me recently about her latest novel, A Hero for Miss Hatherley. It's the first in her Regency Brides, Daughters of Ainsley series, set in the Regency period of British history in the early 1800s. From that conversation, this is Carolyn Miller. I guess I've always been a fan of Jane Austen um, and Georgette Heyer, who also has set books in that time period. So because of things like the wars and um, so there was the the British were involved in lots of wars at that time. So, of course, there's the um, American Revolution, um, but there's also wars against France, wars against um, Spain, various other places. Um, there's exploration, there's inventions, um, social 
change in, in the way that um, people started, it, you know, it was starting to become more industrialised. So that just leads to so many points of interest so that you can really um, try and incorporate stories based. I've really enjoyed researching and getting to know a little bit more about some, you know, the origins of some of the things that we take for granted. So that's been really cool. Set this up for us. Who is the the main? Actually, you've got a couple of main characters. You have obviously Miss Hatherley. You also have a gentleman who is a fossil hunter. So set this up for us, if you will. Sure. So um, Caroline Hatherley is one of those sort of prim and proper people, um, and she's a lot of money. She's a bit of an heiress, and so. She kind of knows what's expected of her, but when there's something that is, um, you know, a little scandal opportunity, (laughs) she's forced to to leave her home and go to Devonshire to spend some time with her um, grandmother. And when she's there, she meets Gideon Kirby, who is um, a scientist. And yes, it's it was really a great opportunity to um, look at one of these things that was happening at this time, which was the start of fossil hunting. And, um, okay, we're fairly familiar with dinosaurs and things like that now, but 200 years ago, this was novel and strange and had the um, ability to really challenge people's ideas about how the world was created. So, it made for some really interesting um, study and research as I was looking into into this sort of thing. Well, Gideon Kirby, obviously meeting the heiress, Carolyn Hatherley, and she apparently has a lot of questions, and he <laughs> apparently has quite a few answers from a faith perspective. So just give us an overview or a summary, if you will, about some of the, maybe some of the discussions that they engaged in along the way. Caroline um, has grown up in a family that does not really believe in God um, at that time and perhaps in current times, both in America and in Australia, um, there might be an idea of going to church, or maybe not so much in Australia, um, and might call themselves, um, you know, believers, but not necessarily engaged with what that happens. So while it was church going might be like a, a sort of expected thing it didn't necessarily translate to personal faith so she's grown up in a family where faith is not a real part of her life at all so she's got a lot of questions about um about god about um whether jesus was even real and that was really kind of cool because um i as a writer could um explore some of the um early um early teachings about uh, from a number of different people, so not just Christians, but Jews and um, Greek people, and, uh, you know, actually go back to look at some of the sources um, that prove Jesus Christ was a real person. Um, and Gideon was able to use what was known at that time in the 1800s um, about Jesus's existence. And so stuff like that was was really cool. So they have discussions about that. They have discussions about um, 
trusting God. And there's all sorts of fun things along the way that really force them to have these sorts of conversations. So, you know, things like encounters with smugglers and <laughs> various other things that um, really challenge faith and, and cause those sorts of questions to be asked. Carolyn Miller here on The Intersection. Her website address is carolynmillerauthor.com. Jonathan McKee is the author of a book called Guy's Guide to Four Battles Every Young Man Must Face, a manual to overcoming life's common distractions. In a recent conversation, he explored areas of temptation for young men and the importance of being aware of these areas and addressing them biblically. Here now is Jonathan McKee. We live in a country where the average young person gets a smartphone at age 10. They spend over nine hours a day soaking in entertainment media. And when they're not playing Fortnite or laughing at YouTube videos, you know, the role models that are there, you know, uh, streaming in their pockets are, you know, The Rock and Drake and and Post Malone. So, you know, they're kind of hearing messages from those sources a lot. And in a world just full of explicit lies, they need somewhere where they can hear truth in bite-sized pieces that they'll actually read. So that's why we launched this new The Guy's Guide to Four Battles They Face, because, man, this is, this is some of the conversations we need to start having with young people. Well, you've identified these four battles, and just take me through the process, if you would, of how you really identified these four areas that you wanted to address in this book. Well, you know, as a guy who, you know, uh, does parent workshops all the time, and I'm constantly teaching in youth ministry circles um, where I'm talking with youth leaders, guaranteed if a parent or a youth leader or coach comes up and talks to me and has a question about a guy, it's always about one of four things. It's, I always hear this thing. A parent walks up, I can't tell you how many times, they say, man, if I, if I didn't limit my son's screen time, he'd play Fortnite all night long, <laughs> you know, talking about video games, you know? Wow. Or... or or sadly, you know, or mom or dad who said, man, I was looking through my son's browser the other day and discovered that he was looking at porn, you know. Um, the other questions are about self-esteem because their self-image is becoming more and more dependent on likes and the things they're doing for likes. And then uh, the other thing is um, is the just the comfort our country is having with marijuana, thinking it's no big deal. And so many of their role models just being all about, hey, you know, come on, this stuff's legal, it helps medicinally, and so there's this comfort. So we decided we want to talk about this. We want to talk about sexual temptation. We want to talk about screens. We want to talk about self-esteem, and we want to talk about substance abuse. And so this book hits those hard, and it still uses a lot of humor and a lot of stories, bite-side pieces, but it is just not afraid to tackle these issues. These are key issues that we need to talk about with young men today. Well, let's look at these four different areas individually. Sexual temptation is the first one that you mentioned. And of course, going along with that, you're you're dealing with the whole porn issue as well as just yeah. the activities that that guys are being tempted to engage in. So talk about the landscape as you're seeing it today for young men in dealing with these areas of sexual temptation. Well, I tell you, yesterday um, I uh, um, was just thinking over because last week I, I, I did this. Uh, I was reviewing these videos. We did a simulcast last week with 
with Summit Ministries, and I was one of the keynote speakers, and one of the others was Haley Halverson, who was speaking about pornography and the struggles that young men have today. And it's, it's, it's really scary because, I mean, like Barna actually did a recent study where he was looking at uh, practicing Christians versus, um, you know, just people out there who, you know, aren't interested in church or God at all. 41% of practicing Christian males age 13 through 24 uh, go to porn on purpose at least once a month, 41. When, when it comes to non-practicing Christians, 72% seek out porn once or twice a month. So, I mean, the numbers of, of young men that are going to pornography are just off the charts, because what we've got is we've got a situation where now, of course, you know, ever since 2012, our country has crossed the 50% mark for screen ownership. So that means they now carry this device in their pocket that follows them into the bedroom at night in most homes. And that device, you know, can stream all kinds of things. I mean, it, sure, Google, Snapchat, Netflix, all their favorite apps are right in their pocket. Um, a lot of accessibility to sexually explicit material there. And because it's in their bedrooms with them at night, we're talking about more access but less accountability. So it's becoming a problem, and it's becoming something that we need to talk about because even if parents are setting you know, filters and you know, parental controls and all this, it doesn't necessarily stop them from, while they're sitting in class, getting airdropped a picture in class, or their friend just simply walking up to them and holding out their own device and saying, hey, check this out. So we need to have these conversations and prepare them for this and talk to them about it in a world where the average first exposure to pornography is 12 years old. Jonathan McKee here on The Intersection. Learn more at the website, thesource4parents.com. This is The Intersection Podcast with highlights from the Meeting House program heard weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 on Faith Radio online at faithradio.org and through the Faith Radio app. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the media center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection. You can access the Intersection podcast through that media center. You can also subscribe to it through iTunes. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll also find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section of faithradio.org. You can also access content from the Intersection Podcast and the Meeting House through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet through faithradio.org. Well, next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's J.P. DeGantz, founder and president of Communio an organization that helps churches and communities to strengthen marriages using a data-driven approach centered on the principles of Scripture. Here now from a recent conversation is J.P. DeGantz. Yeah, we were trying to find ways, Bob, to uh, to boost the, the behaviors of marriage, decrease divorce rates, in, uh, uh, increase church attendance. The, we understood that these two core pillars of society, family and faith, were on the decline and uh, we weren't content, uh, the, the, the business leaders I was working with weren't content to just curse the darkness and throw shoes at TV sets. They, they wanted to find ways to, to 
bend that needle uh, on a citywide scale. So in, in Jacksonville, we we got to work and uh, uh, working with more than 50 churches in Duval County, uh, we began to abstract out and find, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And um, Camino is really the result of that, that fact finding. We, we saw the, the divorce rate drop significantly by 28% in the first two years and then stay really close to that all-time low uh, in the third year. And we saw churches see their, their attendance figures go up on average 23% and and weekly giving and collections by 28%, which was just a, a useful way to understand that that there was real movement happening and that that, uh, uh, that families were healthier and, and engaging more in church. So, how long was the study overall? It was a three-year. It was a three-year project uh, from 2016 to 2018. Uh, we had scholars from the University of Virginia, uh, Florida State. Unfortunately, the arch rival to my alma mater. Uh, the Florida Gators and uh, and also scholars from BYU and uh, uh, those, they all said, "Look, there's no uh, good explanation for this decline in divorce except uh, except your work." And uh, that's when we realized that you know there was really something there, and uh, and that we had found a unit, you know, a way to scale, and, and that path to scale is really designing around serving churches directly. So what would you say would be some of the principal contributing factors to this occurring? Yeah, you know, church-based distribution was a huge, huge factor. There's two things I would say. Um, Mobilizing churches and helping them understand um, uh, best practices in in delivering couples relationship education. So that's number one. Number two— was the use of data in this. So we used, uh, we developed um, uh, the use of predictive analytics to help churches understand challenges in their own community. And this was something that was entirely new. We could, uh, we realized, you know, sitting down with a pastor, helping him understand that, um, that uh, within a three mile radius of his church campus, uh, there might be 6,000 people who fit a high predictive model for being in a marriage that is in crisis or need, and that they have, uh, and that and that those those individuals have children in the home under the age of, of 15. That that kind of information, with that kind of specificity, ends up changing a conversation from one around being an abstract conversation about why marriage is important to a direct and and personal reason why this is so important. There are real lives uh, uh, and there's real lives at stake in terms of uh, uh, the outcomes of, of, of marriages. And so that actually, Bob, helped to create demand in, on the part of churches saying that they, that, that they wanted to take action. So I think the combination of those, those, those two elements were, were really big. And that's because of that, that's why we abstract, we, we've taken a step back and said, well, you know, what's our go forward model? And it's what we would call a, a data informed full circle relationship ministry, helping a church follow best practices in relationship health for singles, for marriage, uh, those, those approaching marriage, uh, to enrich marriages and help marriages in crisis in each of those four buckets. That's the that's the full hmm. circle element of it. And then data informed is let's let's get the the church into the 21st century and use 
uh, use tools that are ubiquitous in, in the commercial sector and the political sector and helping uh, them diagnose what's going on in, in the community around them. J.P. DeGans here on The Intersection. Learn more about the organization by going to communio, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-O dot O-R-G. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Wesley J. Smith of the Discovery Institute who writes on the Human Exceptionalism blog hosted by National Review Online. He discussed with me a study out of Canada showing doctors involved in taking the lives of their patients. From that recent conversation, this is Wesley J. Smith. Actually, uh, most all but one or two of the killings uh, of patients in Canada were committed by doctors using lethal injections. This is not assisted suicide. This is lethal injection euthanasia. And for your listeners who may not know, uh, the Canadian Supreme Court, I think it was in 2014, might have been 2015, uh, issued a terrible ruling uh, in which they literally created a right to be killed if you have a diagnosable medical condition that causes uh, what they called irremediable suffering, which they defined as suffering even if it could be alleviated, but if the patient doesn't want it to be alleviated, it's considered irremediable and can include, specifically in the uh, ruling, psychological suffering. And and the ruling also said does not have to involve a terminal illness. The country of uh, Canada, instead of resisting that, which they could have, because they have something called the notwithstanding clause where, where the parliament can put a Supreme Court ruling on hold, They just basically caved and created a national legalization law with one caveat that said that death had to be foreseeable. Uh, So euthanasia, Hmm. lethal injection euthanasia, went into effect, I think, in 2015, maybe 2016. But it has been a year or two, maybe three at the most. And the most recent report shows that in 2018, more than 3,000 people were killed by doctors in Canada. And that, by the way, did not include the provinces of Quebec, Northwest Territories, Yukon, or, or Nunavut. So it's, well, it's going to be between three and 4,000. I did a little math. I'm a lawyer uh, because I'm not a great mathematician, so I decided <laughs> to go become a lawyer. But that's 250 a month. That's like 58 to 60 a week, eight a day, one Canadian killed by every three hours. And it's, uh, it's awful. Uh, the, um, there's even been a case of a joint elderly couple euthanasia in Canada, which happens more uh, robustly over in Belgium and the Netherlands. So Canada's heading on a very bad uh, course and jumping very enthusiastically, I'm afraid to say, into the, into the abyss. And what concerns me so much is that there are closest cultural cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, for for years I've argued about euthanasia. And I've pointed out that in say Netherlands and Belgium, they euthanize mentally ill people. They can join organ harvesting with uh, euthanasia, meaning they kill them uh, and then they harvest their organs. Uh, they kill babies in the Netherlands if they're born with serious illnesses uh, or uh, serious disabilities. Uh, in Belgium, the, the lowest age person that has been euthanized, according to Belgian government reports, is age nine. Uh, and every time I bring that up, people say, well, that's that culture. We're, you know, this is the U.S. We, our culture is nothing like that. Well, our culture is a lot like the Canadian culture. And if the Canadian people can 
and they basically support this very enthusiastically. And there's now very active uh, efforts to expand the legalization scope in Canada then we have to be very careful here. You look at the potential of the propensity to actually take the lives of children, and it's it's interesting here in America where you have so many lawmakers that are railing against this legislation that would protect children who survive abortion attempts, basically allowing the taking of a young child's life. <laughs> to me, this is just another step. Well, yeah, and it's really been remarkable. Uh, I live in Virginia, and my governor, unfortunately, Mm. basically said that if a child survives an abortion, that baby can be neglected to death if the mother decides that's what the mother wants. Well, you know, and then uh, others have said uh, it's become quite a partisan issue that that interferes with choice. Well, I'm sorry. Once a baby is born, there's no choice involved at all. There is an independent human being uh, that is no longer in the mother's body, and it's, so it's no longer about the mother controlling her body, which is the uh, uh, justification for abortion. So infanticide is a real, and uh, you have actually some politicians in this country saying they refuse to oppose infanticide, or at the very least, allowing a child to be ne- baby to be ne- neglected to death because the mother wanted that baby aborted and that abortion did not take. Uh, it's quite a remarkable thing, and uh, I think it's an eye-opener for a lot of people. Wesley J. Smith here on The Intersection. Learn more through discovery.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's the executive director of First Stone Ministries, Stephen Black. In a recent conversation, he discussed his involvement in the Gone Too Far movement and its May Pride Fall initiative. From that recent conversation, this is Stephen Black. This all launched on February 6th with um, those uh, on the uh, the speaker on Gone Too Far, the speakers of the, what's called the committee, um, myself, along with Dr. Randy Short, uh, Pastor Stephen Broden, uh, Dan Fisher, Paul Blair, who are pastors at Fairview Baptist Church, Dr. Scott Lively, Peter LaBarbera, and uh, Brian Kimmerker, all of us uh, came together and did a press conference release on February uh, the uh, the 6th in uh, Washington, D.C., to push back and to actually say, this has gone too far. And one of the things that was very disturbing is this idea of the promotion of teaching children the normalization of lesbianism, of gayness, of bisexual transgenderism, plus the plus sign in equal uh, what they call themselves queers or queering, and the idea of polyamorous uh, polygamy, and that all of the these, you know, what we they are now calling sexual minorities are equal to uh, gender and race, and this has gone too far with the children now being actually um, recruited into gay pride parades, and you've got these drag queen boys that are being celebrated in gay bars. You've got parents that think this is a good idea. And so this really is a new wave of indoctrination and propaganda of recruitment of our children. So this has just gone way too far. 
And so as you look at identifying these areas and calling them out and and standing against them with biblical truth, there's this initiative called Pride Fall that has been declared by this Gone Too Far movement for the month of May. So what are the what are the goals? What are your uh, a- ambitions for this particular campaign? Well, Pride Fall is to call attention that mankind in their fallenness, in our all, all of our fallenness, is that we are prideful when we are resistant uh, to God's ways. And so prideful is in, um, in direct parallel to the idea that the LGBTQ movement call themselves uh, prideful and that they choose to make June uh, the month of pride. And the scripture is really clear about uh, the sin of pride, that pride comes before a fall, and uh, and actually destruction. And God is not pleased with mankind choosing to shake its fist at a holy God and try to redefine his beautiful, only and holy divine intention for human sexual relating, which is one man and one woman in a covenant marriage relationship. Instead of pride or pride month is that we're going to redefine everything that the scripture teaches in regard to holy sexuality. And so uh, the month of May is now with this press release from the Gone Too Far committee is the idea that the rainbow and the idea of the rainbow is a sign of God's promise uh, that he is a covenant-keeping God, he's a God of love, a God of grace, but he's also the God that is going to bring judgment. In Second Peter uh, chapter 3, we also know that the Scripture says that in the last days that God is going to bring a new judgment on the, the sin of man, the sin of the world, um, and that's going to be by fire. And a lot of people do not realize that the rainbow actually symbolizes that God is a covenant-keeping God, and he keeps his promises. And so pridefall, or a culture that embraces pride, is actually laying the groundwork for destruction. And that's why there is a pushback on H.R. 5, the House Resolution Bill, that now sits on Nancy Pelosi's desk. And Senate 788, uh, S-788, that has gone into the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee. And so there needs to be some calling and pushback on this this sin of pride that brings destruction, not just uh, to the LGBT community, but to the entire culture. And so that's why there's this initiative called Pridefall. Stephen Black here on The Intersection. You can find out more information about First Stone Ministries by going to firststone.org. The Gone Too Far site is gone, the number two, far.org. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection. You can also download the current Intersection podcast and previous episodes through the Media Center, or you can subscribe via iTunes. 
And through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community updated weekly. Plus, there's The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention held recently in Anaheim, California. And when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you can find out about the various apps through which you can access content from the Meeting House program. And of course, that includes the Faith Radio app. Learn about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the website faithradio.org. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.